night's heart And ambitions are low Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Paul Petron, and it's my very great pleasure to welcome all of you here this afternoon and welcome our very, very special guest this afternoon, Mary Coglin. Thank you. Now, we're here, of course, to um, hear about this book, Bloody Mary, Mary's Story, published 10 years ago. I think so, yeah. It's I didn't even know it was available in Australia. I carried a hundred books out with me from Ireland <laughs> <laughs> in a very big suitcase, and they're all here already. <laughs> now, already, Mary, you've had two wonderful gigs here at the Port Ferry Folk oh, Festival. unbelievable, Last yeah. night and then this morning again. Yeah. The audience is loving it. Did you all see, Mary? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> This is a talk session, but, you know, you never know. We might, might get the song. We'll see how we go. This book has so much information, so much about your life, Mary. We can talk about the nuts and bolts, why do it, how you did it. Um, maybe we could start that way. I mean, do you keep a diary of day-to-day -day activities for a start or not? Just up here. <laughs> I, uh, as I get older, I have to write things down on the fridge and keep them there with the magnet about things I have to do. But mostly, um, if somebody offers me a gig, I just put it in here and I can recall it at any time and write the date down and book the flights. And I do everything myself nowadays because I've had such bad experience with uh, record companies and uh, managers and agents. And uh, I mostly do everything myself, including book transport for me and the band. <laughs> I find it works better like that. So. But, but to remember, I mean... This is chronological, obviously. Yeah, I think um, so. <laughs> so. All the details that, that come out in a book. I mean, you get on a roll. I mean, how did you write it? Did you lock yourself away and say, I'm going to spend the next six months, 12 months writing all this stuff down? Tell us about it, how okay, you actually... Okay, so I, I started singing when I was 29 and my first album was called Tired and Emotional. And up until that point... Um, since I was, I had my first daughter when I was 19 and then I became a macrobiotic and a breastfeeding advocate and natural childbirth. So I threw myself into that and um, somebody heard me singing in um, my kitchen one night at a birthday party and he was a Dutch musician and um, he asked me if uh, I would be interested in doing an album. So we did. So... I suppose I never, you know, I, I, I did usual teenage drinking and drugging stuff, you know, when I was 14 or 15. And I had pushed stuff to the back of my mind that had happened to me as a child. Because I, when I was young, I didn't have a name for it. And, um, but it, it, I never, ever forgot any, any incident of anything that happened. There are only two incidents in my drinking that I can't remember. I think I did them in a blackout. Uh, one of them was I went to Dublin Airport. I have no recollection of going to Dublin Airport, buying a ticket for New York, uh, falling down the escalator and ending up in hospital. I have all I, all I, all I remember is ending up in hospital. So um, only two things I forget, which is sometimes hard because I do remember all of the, pardon my language, the shit. 
and um, I do remember all the good times. Now I haven't had a drink for uh, almost 25 years. On St. Patrick's Day will be my uh, 25th anniversary for having a no drink. So um, yeah, so I don't know. You want me to? I'm not. I'm not saying it for applause. I'm just saying I do remember everything painfully now for the last 25 years, and I do take full responsibility for all the damage that I've caused in my drinking. Was it hard to sit and write everything down? It was so painful that uh, I just wanted to not do it. You know, people have been asking me for years and years and years and years to do it. And then this one um, uh, called Brida from Hachette, she said, well, look, can I just come and meet you and talk to you about it? And I said, okay. And she said, well, how would you like to do it? And I said, um, I don't know. She said, I could, you know, I said, I'd like to do it with somebody else. So I had a friend called Brian Finnegan who um, sat with me every morning uh, for three or four hours a day uh, with the tape recorder. And I just talked to him. He asked me questions and I talked to him and we sent it away to America. It was so painful that sometimes I just had, I couldn't do it some days. And then I just would ring Breed and said, I can't do this. Especially when we were going through some of the, the abuse stuff. Um, I just didn't want to do it, you know. I didn't want to, I mean, I'd been sober a few years at the time and I just didn't want to go back there, you know. Uh, and he said, okay, we'll say goodbye for today and I'll come again tomorrow. And um, yeah, it took, it took a while. And um, we sent it away to be typed out. Um, there's a company that just type out all the, the tapes, you know, hundreds. Trans transcribe all yeah, the audio. Transcribe. Even when my kids would come in, Matt, do you want a cup of coffee? <laughs> that was all in the transcription too. <laughs> and, um, and then when, when it finally came to finish it, when I did the last chapter, um, I had already had several um, writs our solicitor's letters from uh, ex-husbands, uh, one from Sinead O'Connor, who I didn't even mention in the book, despite the fact that she ran off with my second husband. Um, I didn't, I didn't, I just didn't mention her on purpose, <laughs> which I'm delighted about. Um, I had uh, ex-agents, record company people, all writing big fancy posh letters to solicitors. So <clears throat> the day of reckoning came and I went into a room with the publisher and they had seven lawyers there and they had uh, red stickers on most of the pages. <laughs> so I had to either say, well, I, uh, I, had to, I had to leave out a lot of the funny bits. I mean, nights with Nick Cave and Shane McGowan that were just too, too incredible to, uh, to, to uh, not, I couldn't, I couldn't mention, I could say that I did all that stuff, but I couldn't say I did it with them, I, with nights with, I'll tell you, one night in particular with Van Morrison, Elvis Costello, Nick Cave and Shane McGowan, who all came to see me perform in London and how we went on an absolute rip roaring tear until 7 a.m. the following morning. That didn't get put in the book, I don't think. I don't think I mentioned names anyway. But um, I've had, you know, I, I remember it all. So it was hard to do. The stuff about the abuse was the hardest. And the stuff about... Um, when I went into rehab, um, we had um, 
I had tried to stop drinking. Uh, and I was hospitalized 32 times in two years for alcohol poisoning. And then I went to rehab because anything else wasn't, you know, I was going to meetings and stuff like that, but it wasn't doing anything for me. So there's a place in Dublin called the Rutland Center. And it's, you know, puts a stake through your soul, your soul when you hear the Rutland Center, because uh, you know that that's probably the last chance saloon. If you come out of there, you're not going to be drinking again. And they have a thing there called reality therapy. And every Tuesday and Wednesday, they bring your family in and brought my children in. Um, <clears throat> so I had come from Mother Earth, breastfeeding and, you know, all of that brown rice and vegetables to becoming somebody who was hospitalized 32 times for alcohol poisoning in two years. And um, every Tuesday, the day was given over to your family and they had to come in uh, one by one and speak about what it was like to live with you as an alcoholic and members of my band. And my daughter Aoife, who was um, about 14, used to sleep outside my door at night with the pillow um, because I slept in the spare room with um, She was afraid I would um, vomit and die. And uh, my son, Owen. Fuck. <laughs> Just how hard it was. He was seven. I asked him to talk about what it was like living with his mother who was drinking. And he said that he was so lonely. And he missed me. And he remembered one night I drove in the car and I was drunk and he was really scared. And, uh, you know, I did it in a room full of people like this because all of the other they called us clients in the Rutland Centre. All the other 25 patients that were there all had their families there as well. And um, had to do it in front of everyone. And uh, <coughs> everybody went home then. There were no phone calls allowed. There was no books. All you, had, all you could do really was talk about your stuff in group therapy and stuff. And uh, I slapped my daughter. The only time I ever slapped any of my children um, Alwyn was her name and she was about 10 and she was pouring a bottle of vodka down the sink and I slapped her uh, after promising after having a life of violence myself that I would never ever do that I still remember those things you know it's just one slap but it was enough and that's what made me stop drinking their stories every Tuesday I stayed there for six weeks and every every Tuesday they would come in with the little stories that they could remember about me when I was drinking. And uh, I went in one Wednesday morning to group therapy and the therapist said, how are you today, Mary? And I said, oh, grand. He said, what the fuck do you mean you're grand? I said, I'm grand. And she said, I was here yesterday and I listened to your children. And that was the beginning of what they do. They just break you down. Yeah. So I'm grateful to be here, grateful to the Rutland Centre and that kind of therapy that they don't do much of anymore because it's quite difficult. But it's, um, well, here I am, you know. 
I'm still able to sing. <laughs> and uh, I probably would have been six feet under if it hadn't been for that place. I'm just wondering, is it? Uh, thank you. Has anybody read this book already? Okay. There's lots of really happy bits. <laughs> there's lots of happy stories. There's lots of confronting stories. Mary reveals everything as she's sharing with us this afternoon. Substance abuse, alcohol, drugs, violence in families, problems with record companies, difficulties touring, managing the physical aspects. But what seems to come through and what we'll talk about is also the power of music to help healing and to help bring you into another place. And, and maybe we can go back, first of all, to those times in Galway when you were a young child listening to music and what music did for you and, um, and, and why you then chased music. Yeah, um, it's been a long road. I, I, I was first sexually abused by one of my grandfathers before I was seven. I remember that because I hadn't yet made my Holy Communion. Uh, so I was probably five or six. I don't remember what age I was. And then by two uncles. Um, at some stage, I was 11, and I was in Donegal with my grandmother. And she was a red-haired woman like myself, had a hard life, many, many children. Uh, she was married to an alcoholic. Uh, she brought me into Derry on the bus. And I got a transistor radio, a small, tiny thing that size. And I used to put it under my pillow at night when I was told to turn off the light and go. I shared the bedroom with my two sisters. But tune, we didn't have any popular music on our, the local RTE, which was the national radio station. So we listened to Radio Luxembourg and uh, Radio Caroline, which were two um, pirate stations. And it really started, I mean, I just lost myself in music, you know, and books. I read everything I could lay my hands on, whether it was Enid Blyton or, you know, whatever. And music has just always, always been my salvation. And I remember when I was... Um, <clears throat> when I was 16, uh, my boyfriend, had, uh, whom I'd been forbidden to see because he was older than me, he gave me a Van Morrison record. He came to our house and tapped on the window. He knew I'd be there uh, listening to records. Uh, at 16, we had a little red and white record player. And he passed in uh, a record to me. It was called St. Dominic's Preview. I listened to one track. I don't know, about 10 times. And I went upstairs and took a razor from my father's uh, shaving cabinet and slashed my wrists and ended up in hospital. And started to tell the psychiatrist the stuff that had happened to me when I was a child. And he told my mother well, I was crazy. And they gave me some pills and kept me there for a month and sent me home. And then, listening to Van Morrison, and listening to um, Leonard Cohen and Billie Holiday 
Frank Sinatra, it just became my salvation. I went on to have three children, very young. My first daughter, Aoife, was born when I was 19. She's 43 now. I have five grandchildren. But even washing nappies, uh, I would be singing, good morning, heartache, <laughs> and stuff, you know. And I just, you know, I never, ever, it never, ever crossed my mind that I would, I would become a professional singer until that day that Dutchman called Eric Fisser came into my life and he said, do you want to do a record? I've heard you singing. And uh, and now, and all through the bad times, you know, and now I just love it more and more, you know. I travel all over the world a lot of the time. I bring the kids out here to Australia. Uh, the first and second time I came out, about my, I have two more children who were born uh, in the past 25 years and uh, brought them to Australia, brought them scuba diving, brought my eldest son, the one that was the guy who said he was lonely, brought him to to um, to Australia and, you know, I brought them to, it's just, it's just been an incredible life. And I, ha I haven't had, I have had the amount of success that I can handle and I'm good with that, you know. Um, at one stage, uh, Warner Brothers, you know, wanted me to do particular songs that would be on top of the pops and stuff like this. And I said no, and they said I was difficult. <laughs> and I got a name for being... Uh, actually, they phoned my husband and said I was hysterical. <coughs> and um, I just, you know, and they fired my producer, Eric, whom, whom I had worked with for years. And um, anyways, it's all in here. <laughs> um but music is, and now still, um, the way I sing now, the songs that I choose, the albums that I do. I wrote a play last year. Uh, I spent a couple of years doing it. Um, I got a guy, I met a guy from Iceland who did the, composed the music. And he composed it for five uh, females to sing. And all of the women on stage um, represent a man in my life. Uh, there was a soldier who was the father, my father's soldier. So the, all, all they all take, you know. So it's very powerful, very moving. Um, it was um, directed by two young fellows called Broken Talkers, Valger Sigurdsson. Um, I couldn't believe, uh, you know, that it was coming, you know, to the stage. It was really hard. It was even harder than this to do. And um, we've just been nominated for the best music for theatre in Ireland. So I go home and put on my posh frock <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and bring all my family to that on uh, the 31st of March, if uh, living and breathing. So That first time you went on stage in, a, in a, a proper gig, what was that feeling like? I mean, obviously it was good because then it inspired you to keep going, but just set, a, set the scene for us. Well, the first time wasn't great. <laughs> uh, there was about four people there. And the second time, there were about six or seven hundred. But there was one time, I remember in particular, I was doing um, a theatre in Dublin called the Olympia Theatre. And I did it for seven nights. It held a couple of thousand people. And my mother and father came up from Galway. And um, they were sitting in one of those fancy boxes, you know. And... Uh, I just, it was just the weirdest experience in my life. 
I mean, I'd been singing for two years at that stage. And I walked out on the stage this particular night, probably four nights into the run, to sing a song called The Beach, which was always my song to sing to get comfortable. So it was always about the third song into the set. And after that, I relaxed because it's a funny story. And, you know, I would just get into the rest of the gig. And I just stood there looking. And I, nothing would come out of my mouth. And the band was playing, and Richie Buckley was a saxophone player, and he just kept going round and round and round. And I was like, what the fuck am I doing here? I should be at home minding my kids. And, and I don't know, it just, it was like my whole life went before my eyes. And that has happened to me one more time. Um, but mostly, since I started to become comfortable with it, and comfortable with people because it's a very it's a deep connection that you have with people when you're up there and i've never kind of held back on on you know either stories or in my music and there's nothing like it you know um it's a different kind of uh different kind of love that you get back a different type of love that you give out. It's not like the love for your children or your family or your partners or whatever. It's just, uh, it's just, it's just brilliant. I mean, this and morning. The, and there's an energy transfer, isn't there, from the audience to you that. It's just like, it's unbelievable. Like, I, this morning was incredible. Um, last night was amazing. I said, there'd be nobody here. Be nobody here. They'll all be putting their tents up, you know. But like then I looked into the tent, and there was so many people there. And it was like you just you see people in the front row or a few rows back and they're just like <laughs> and you just like concentrate on just you know, transferring that energy and it comes back in bucket loads. And this morning too, it just it just comes back. It's just that it's very special. I'm very, very grateful and I have never ever taken it for granted. And and that's really that's really good. It keeps my feet on the ground, you know, because you never actually I never actually know if anyone's going to turn up to a gig. <laughs> I've been at it for thirty years, and I still go to places and geez, I wonder will anyone come. <laughs> but um, there you go. Would you like to read something that you've marked in your book there for us? <clears throat> Pick a page. Um, I don't know what do you do. You want do you want to hear about? I, how long have we got? How long would you like to stay? <laughs> a little uh, while yet. <laughs> a little while yet. Mm -hmm. um, what about when you first experienced Billy Holiday's music? Oh, Jesus, I can't find that page. I didn't mark them. I just put <laughs> Karen, the woman who's doing some work with me, uh, Karen Conrad, who said to say hello, put all the markers in. Um, I'm going to do this one, um, I think. It was when I wanted to sing and my first husband um, didn't want me to sing. He wanted me to stay at home and he wasn't comfortable. I only did two songs every Wednesday night with the jazz band in Galway and another one, and I sang two Billy Holiday songs and another gig on Sunday morning that my parents, all my family came to, but he wouldn't. So I'll, 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 sing, uh, I'll sing that bit, or I'll, I'll say that bit, will I? I'll read that bit. Um, 
I was not deterred by his attitude. There was a jazz band who played on the pub scene in Galway at the time. They did Sunday afternoons in O'Reilly's in Salt Hill and Wednesday nights in the Cellar Bar. Eric encouraged me to approach them about singing with them. It would give me good practice at performing in different situations, getting used to other musicians and new audiences. The band was up first, so every Sunday, the jazz band, every Sunday, I would do three Billy Holiday standards, nobody's business, all of me, and lover man. I never got paid, but that wasn't what it was about. I looked forward to it in a way that I had not looked forward to anything before in my life. The Sunday morning sessions in Salt Hill were great fun. Everyone in my family would come out, my mother, my father, and all of the kids. It was a very friendly affair. Wednesday nights was a different thing. Fenton, my husband, put his foot down about it from day one. He wasn't letting me go out. We lived a few miles out of town and he would do everything in his power to stop me from getting to the venue. One night he refused to let me get into the car, so I hopped on a bicycle and off I went in the wind and rain. Hell would freeze over before he could stop me. All week long in between Wednesday night gigs, there would be hor horrific rows, me screaming at him, I'm going to do it, you're not going to fucking stop me and him roaring back, calling me names and accusing me of not caring about the children. He became like a whole other creature and it would have been unbelievable if only I hadn't experienced the same thing with my own father when I was younger. Uh, the rows got worse and worse. One night as I was pulling out of the driveway, he wouldn't let me close the door of the car. So I put it into reverse. I remember the three kids standing in the doorway of the house three, four, and two years of age, the light of the hall behind them, just looking at us. I remember their little faces. Finton held onto the car door as I tried to get away, and the car door broke off. I screeched out of the driveway and drove into town with no door, but I was determined to do so. Um, during this time, I got some offers of support gigs for uh, Mary Black, Maura O'Connell, and... Um, I always, I always did the same songs. I always did Billy Holiday songs. Um, uh, I don't know. You know, there's, there's, I mean, we could go on. And then, then I left my husband um, eventually when I decided that I wanted to sing and rear my three children on my own rather than put up with kind of the same abuse that I did from my father and other people. So um, I left him. I put them into a car. And we drove to Dublin, and um, that was before I even had a gig. But uh, we had recorded the album, Eric and I. And Finton, strangely, wrote a beautiful song for me called The Double Cross, which is uh, it's about our early life together and the fact that he was lost with me and even more lost without me. And uh, strangely, it became the first number one that I ever had. And uh, as I say now, uh, he gets paid all the money <laughs> <coughs> because he wrote it. So, <clears throat> um, so three kids, and your musical career hadn't really started. You're no. on your on your own raising three children, and then of course you're invited to you know get a band together, record an album, <coughs> start touring the world. Pretty daunting prospect. It was, yeah. It was very daunting, and um, but I really wanted it. But I was 
deeply conflicted, I suppose. And I think that's why I'm not, it was that conflict in me that <coughs> I didn't want to leave the kids, so I drank to not think about it. And I didn't want to come home because I'd been having such fun on the road. Like one time we were on the road for 10 weeks, 14 of us, um, me and all my band and backing singers and technicians on a big bus, 10 weeks going out of our minds all over Europe and Scandinavia. And, and then you realize, okay, I have to go home tomorrow. This all stops. It's back to cooking dinners and school uniforms and homework. And there's a certain, you know, you want to go home. You're really lonely when you go out first and then you don't want to go home. It's a really a strange, strange situation. It was unhealthy. And, um, you know, that's, I ended up in that awful position because I could never reconcile it, you know. Nowadays, my kids live with me. <laughs> They'll never get <laughs> <can> move out. <laughs> um, but I am, you know, grateful for that. You know, my my uh, one of my daughters is living with me currently, and her little her partner and her child they're saving up to buy a new house. And before that, I had one of my other daughters and her three dogs, <laughs> and one child living with me, um, for four years. And they eventually bought the field next door to mine and uh, built a house there. So. But yeah, that, that, I mean, like, at times it didn't seem like my feet ever touched the ground because it went from being a housewife to doing this in the space of a year, you know? And I was a hippie, you know? And uh, I really, really wanted it. And, you know, it was, but it just completely overwhelmed me, you know? It overwhelmed us all. And then, you know, my parents, uh, I ran away from home. I just after I did my leave insert in Ireland and um, I, I used to send my parents uh, postcards from various places, but I'd never tell them where I was, you know. And, you know, I talk about that and here's, I, I can't imagine how they must have felt. Um, but they knew why I, I left. Uh, they didn't completely acknowledge the whole situation with my grandfather and my uncles until my sister and I started to talk about it to them. And then we confronted them, you know. Um, sorry, I, I just never, I never stick to the, the question, <laughs> sorry. But it was, um, it was just, yeah, you know, it was just like, it was a, a, whir a whirlwind kind of a thing and a roller coaster and it was, filled with ups and downs. And in between all of that stuff, there were everybody, everybody wanted to rip you off. Or that's the way I felt. And in a lot of cases, it was the case, you know. And, you know, but that was my fault because I kept my eye. I was too busy having a good time to keep my eye on the ball, you know. But that's what I was doing out there, singing and having a great time around the world. And um, people were just at home um, not doing what they were supposed to be doing, record companies and stuff. You know. Well, speaking of record companies, of course, you recorded an album, then you went on a tour making lots of money, and then you find out later on that the album didn't sell as well as you thought, <coughs> and you actually owed the record company lots of money. And yeah, they, so they, it was they, one of the most painful times in my life because I had met Eric Visser and, um, in the late 70s, and when I recorded the album, uh, Tired and Emotional, he paid for it because he believed in me. And we recorded another one called Ancient Rain and another one called Under the Influence. 
And at that stage, I was selling, you know, probably hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of records all over um, Europe, Scandinavia, mostly in Germany. And Warner Brothers, um, you know, were setting up and taking notice. And they, they asked me to record with a producer called um, Pete Lannister, who had just had a number one album with uh, Alison Moyet and another one with a guy called Terrence Tre- Trent Darby. And they fired Derek and he said, look, I can take it. I'm, I'm a big guy. He was also in the music business in Holland. And um, I didn't want to sing the songs that they were giving me. I didn't want to lose Eric. I didn't want to give up my Irish band. But my manager said to me, um, he said, OK, he says, you walk away from all of this. They have no problem. You walking away it means they don't have to pay for anything. So I did it sort of half heartedly. I think the album. And they had spent about they spent a lot of money on it, but it was not the album that people knew that I was capable of. And it was a very beautiful, very slick, very well polished. I love Pete Lannister. He's amazing. We're doing another album now. It won't be like that. There's no record company involved. But um, yeah, they didn't make as much money as they thought. And my manager at the time and my accountant who played on my first album and was one of my closest friends uh, made me sign lots of pieces of paper over the years, you know, and I fucking I did it. It's whatever they put in front of me, I signed. I trusted them stupidly. And one of those pieces of paper was that I... Um, signed over my house to my manager and which was a beautiful house which I bought for me and my three children in Dublin and when the tour it wasn't the record didn't sell it didn't sell as well as they thought but the tour lost money because it was it was completely very elaborate and we had an awful lot of people on the road as I said we were paying 14 people a night whether working or not and uh when I came back, he just called me into the office and he said, the bank have foreclosed. And I said, how do you mean the bank have foreclosed? And I said, well, we, you know, you underwrote the tour with your house. I said, no, I fucking didn't. He said, well, yes, you did. Here's the piece of paper, you know. So, yeah, I went from living in a very, very nice house to um, living in a not so very nice house. And then that's when I started drinking like a fish. So um, I'm not making, I'm not blaming him or them or anything, but it was just the last straw as far as I was concerned. So that would be one reason why I never really had um, record label. Well, I did have one record label after that, but I've been doing things on my own ever since, you know, so. Eric Visser was your producer before those times, and you obviously had a very strong and good working relationship with Eric. And as you said, he accepted the situation and said, you know, yeah. I'm a grown man, I know what record companies are but you made it up with Eric and you've, you've it did yeah um you know when when the album didn't do so well um the record companies well I was still tied in for you know some more albums and they said okay well do you want Eric back you know and I uh, wrote to him and said okay you know let's do another album we did called Sentimental Killer we did several more albums after that he very sadly has Parkinson's disease now and um he one of the most incredible guitar players. He has a band in Holland called Flerick, F-L-A-R-C-K. And he wrote a tune for my daughter Aoife when she was born. 
he sold millions and millions, hundreds of millions of albums. And he's a beautiful classical guitarist and he can't even hold a guitar anymore. But the last album we did is called Scars on the Calendar. And um, we did it in my house. Just me and him and a bass player. And my son Owen Seto, who did um, sound recording, set up the studio for us and his friend Aza. And we did the album as we could, as Eric was able to play. You know, he would take dopamine injections and stuff like that to stop his shakes. And he'd play for a few hours and then he'd be exhausted. And it was the one another really, really painful time in my life. And um, but we did an album. We have some back. I didn't even know we had any left. <laughs> but um, um, the uh, my partner, John, found some in a warehouse in New Zealand. So we brought them with us. And that's the last um, of them. Um, he's, um, that's another sad chapter in my life. So, um, it is, it's the hardest, hardest album I've ever had to do. One time we were doing it, I, it was snowing outside in my house and I went outside and I was just screaming and screaming and I said, I can't do this song, you know? And he said, it's just fucking feelings. Just shut the fuck up and come in and sing the song. You've done it before. And I said, I can't, you know. And you can hear me actually crying on the, on, on the track, um, which he left in. And I, I never listen to things after I've recorded them um, because they're done. I sing them live and always differently. You know, when you're in a studio. But that one was particularly hard because it was in my house and he was in that state, you know. So how do you decide which songs you're going to record if the record company doesn't tell you which, which, which songs you have to do? Well, that was Your the only choice. time they told me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it so didn't work out well for them. <laughs> um, do you look at the lyrics and the, the, the lyrics connect or the sound of a, another singer, a, a Billie Holiday? Or, um, I suppose my heart come. You'd have to hit you somewhere, you know. The lyrics would be really, really important for me. He always looked after the music. But that album I wrote, I wrote with Eric, um, 11 of the songs that are on it. I had co-written a couple of songs before that, but I've had close friends all my life. Johnny Mulhern wrote, I think, 11 songs that I've recorded over the years, one of them being the Magdalene Laundry. And, uh, you know, now, it, now I'm, I'm, I'm just about to, to head into the studio again. I'm meeting Pete Glenister on the 25th of April. And we're co-writing. I sent him some lyrics this morning. And um, every time I think of a little idea, he sends it to me and I send it to him. So we're doing another album. But it won't be, there won't be a record company. There, there are no record companies around anymore. It's quite hard, you know, to do it. And I am grateful to Warner Brothers because I would never have made it to Australia if it wasn't for them. Uh, because I sold a lot of albums out here in the 90s and... When my daughter moved out here, she said, man, they're always playing you on the radio. So, and that's why I came out, you know. So yeah. they did. You know, I hated them <laughs> for obvious reasons. But they did a really good job. You know, record companies did. They had a function. And that was to publicize you. And that was so that they would make their money back that they spent, you know. And, um, and they did a really good job. And I, have to, I am grateful to them for, for that, you know. Tell me about the, the headspace that you get into when you're, say, well, first of all, writing a book or writing a play 
or writing lyrics for a song, is it the same sort of process for you? The songwriting process is different because I don't write. I, I'm not able to. Well, I just did 11 songs for a new play, so I'm able to write them. But it's they're more. It's more. If they're not verse, chorus, verse, chorus. They're just. Um, they're just lyrics. They're just lines of songs that this guy Valgir Sigurdsson has worked. So with. a narrative, a story. It's a narrative, yeah. yeah. And he set them to music. He's worked with Bjork and everybody, and he's very talented at just you know writing soundscapes, you know, which is what he did. Um, the album with Eric, they're just stories from my life. The one about being in the, um, uh, the lunatic asylum, as we called it. Um, there's stories there about, you know, breakups and stuff. But they're just stories, and I would send them with uh, emails to Eric's wife, Antoinette. And uh, she's good at putting the verses with the choruses, you know. So there would be co-writes with her, you know. And he always did the music. So that's the way it's been. And Johnny Mulhern would, um, Johnny is just the most incredible songwriter. Uh, Christy Morris recorded a lot of his stuff, but um, he just sits at home and writes. But the play and the book were different. The play took two years to write because I'd been in therapy um, because I'm, I, I love finding out why I do certain things and why I repeat patterns in my life. And every day I'd get into the car and with the, the phone, the, the miracle of the iPhone, and I'd turn on the voice uh, memo every every Wednesday and I'd sit in the car park and um, after my therapy session and I would just speak into it. And then I would go home and write. I'm very, very lazy. So that was an incredible invention. Uh, you know, the voice thing on the, the phone, that was incredible. And then it wasn't until I was in the room with the directors that they made me transcribe everything. I said, I'll do it next week. I'll do it next week. Now you sit there and do it now. You know, so we had an office and the three of us would get together um, every morning for a few hours and I would write the stuff and they would read it and say, well, we'll take that person. Can you write, can you write about this sentence a little bit more? So it was, you know, it took two years, you know, and um, it's difficult, but... Um, uh, this uh, this album is going to be much more of a celebration of um, of, of being around uh, in my sixties, and it's kind of I like concepts, so it's going to start um, with me growing up on my street in Chantilla, about the most amazing times we had as kids on the street playing because you know your mother'd put you out in the morning. And then you'd have to stay out all day. Like, you know, you come in for your dinner at one o'clock and in for your tea at six o'clock. The summer holidays were endless. Just pushing my baby brothers up and down in a pram. But we all, there were 40 houses on our street. And, you know, even a month ago, I got a letter from one of my neighbors um, on my email to say that it wasn't just in my house that stuff like happened to me. And I have lots and lots of letters from girls I grew up with and we never talked to each other about stuff like that. But um <coughs> what was your question? <laughs> <laughs> well, we were talking about the, the process of writing, so, yeah. whether it's, so whether now it's I'm songs writing, or plays. So now or I'm, I'm writing a song. I've written a song about all those, not all of the people, obviously, but the times and the games that we spent. So the album is going to be uh, kind of chronological, starting off there. And ending up um, at the age, I had a heart attack a couple of years ago. I 
kept going to the hospital telling them there's something wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with you. Your cholesterol is perfect. There's nothing wrong with you. You're having a panic attack. So I eventually had a heart attack a few months later. I'm bionic now. I have four stents. And um, so it's about, um, so there's certain songs about certain types, times in my life. And we, there, some of them are really, really funny. And um, they're just kind of celebrations of different periods of my life. So Do you being, know what I mean? being let loose on the streets when you're a young kid, that, was that sort of build resilience, you think, that's held you together you know, all we these years? kind of tribal. You know, all the kids on our streets. We were all, like, I came from a family of five, but most of my friends had eight, nine, ten brothers and sisters. Uh, one of my uh, friends, Dolores, had, there were, her mother had 25 children. And 23 of them lived. And they lived in a house like ours. And most of my best friends came from at least eight, ten. And they all lived in a house like I did too. And we thought we were bad. The three girls in one room, the two boys in another room. We all came from three bedrooms, you know, uh, houses. I can't, you know. I remember Tim Sullivan, this guy I, I went out with briefly. He said that he had 13 in his family. And... Uh, he said, like, when the bell went at one o'clock for school, lunch, they would fucking kill each other to get out the door, <laughs> to go home to get the first sitting, <laughs> because the ones who came for the second and third sitting, you know, it got smaller and smaller. But, you know, I still have um, great fun with some of the women that I went to school with. And uh, so that's, you know, because we all came from the same place. It's like a tribal thing, you know, like we, we grew up on the streets, really. Mm. We found... We found our, 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 our stuff on the street. We found it was safer to be on the street with each other than it was to be in many of our homes. Mm. Which is weird. But there you go. Any chance of a song? Would you like to sing a song for us? Please, please, please. <coughs> sing a song. Jesus. Uh, there's one I have to stand up, though. Um I've really enjoyed my time here in Port Ferry. It's been 15 years, you know, since I came. I don't know if I need to. I need the microphone. Or my, where's your man? Where's the microphone, Just man? stay off it. There he is. Um, I'll do it here. I've done this before. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Once or twice. <clears throat> this is a song that uh, um, is on my uh, album called The House of Ill Repute. And... Um, it started off as a very, 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 very angry song about my second husband, Frank, um, who I was only married to for seven months when he told me he'd been shagging our old pair. <laughs> and um, we had, we still have two beautiful children together. He comes to my house for Christmas every year and we have a fine time together now. The whole lot of us, you know, like, and uh, my partner, John, who's from New Zealand, is uh, extremely... Um, kind and <laughs> mostly about it all uh, and um, but this song started to be very angry about that it was written in anger and uh, the first few lines <coughs> are hard to take and um, it became really sad over the years but the first time I ever sang it in public a woman came up to me afterwards she wrote me a letter and she said may God forgive you for saying such a thing about your husband who's the father of your children and I hadn't been quite upfront about why I was singing it <laughs> but um there was uh the affair with the au pair whom I really loved 
and um, later on then the much more public one with um, Sinead, um, whom they have a kid with, uh, whom I look after all the time as part of the family. So, he doesn't know what he's doing. No, this way. Have you? Oh, here we go. Okay. <coughs> okay, so I'll, I think I remember it. I haven't sung it for a while. I was going to sing it this morning and then I didn't. I'll sing it. I'll sing it now. My heart it is Antarctica, iced water chills my veins. My disembodied voice calls you a hundred thousand names. You lying bastard, whoring fraud. You rotten, stinking cheats. I thought you were my haven. Now I drown in your deceit. I'm cast adrift to wander through the memories of that life, recalling again in which I was your wife. Now I am tossed and battered by the catabatic wind and constantly reminded you're no more my next of kin. My heart is, is Antarctica, so deep beneath the snow, and under miles of crushing white, where no mortal man can go. Beating once in every year, sending shock waves through the ice, an occasional reminder of my suspended life, and in the chill of of an everlasting day, a parade of icebergs goes on its way, and as I gaze upon them, 
very seed into the blue and paint a pretty picture I no longer think of you okay thank you Back from our torture. <laughs> Thank you. What sort of relationship do you have with your kids now? Oh Jesus, <laughs> it is wonderful. Um, there's a, a good a good chapter in the end of the book. I probably the the last one. It's beyond my wildest dreams. Um, we've. I, I'll read this. It's Sunday afternoon. I'm in the kitchen cooking lunch. John is sitting at the breakfast counter chatting to Ollie's partner, Damien, and Aoife's husband, James. It's hard to believe, but John and I have been together now for four years and counting. Ollie has moved into the house next door with Damien. She's always in and out, borrowing this and that, chatting over cups of coffee. Claire and Kean are in the big white sitting room, lying on the couches, watching a Harry Potter DVD. Kean's hair has a streak of blue in it now, the beginnings of a teenager striking out on his own. Owen, who lives a few doors up the road, arrives and surveys the array of food in the kitchen. He's back in college now, studying science, and he's always starving. Running from room to room, tormenting our dog Billy, is my gra- named after Billy Holiday, of course. Our dog Billy is my granddaughter, Manny. Her mother, Aoife, is helping me in the kitchen. She's pregnant again, having a baby in three months. The day Aoife first asked me to come over and babysit for my granddaughter was very special for me. It meant so much that she trusted me enough to look after her precious daughter. I'm only now trying to be the mother to all of my children that they deserved, giving them the respect and freedom and nurturing they're entitled to. They have each had their difficulties, difficulties that have roots in my own past behavior and life. But by and large, they're doing really well. They're the next generation of my family. As part of my own generation, I have made my own journey towards being a healthy person, trying to live to the best of my ability. I'm still making that journey from my grandparents to my parents to myself. We are all part of the same journey. In January, my father turned 80. He organized his own huge party in a hotel in Galway for the occasion, and the entire family came. After dinner, myself, Angela and Carol, my sisters, got up on the stage and belted out our party piece, The House of the Rising Sun. We were his three girls again that night, and I have never seen him happier. Even though it's been five years since Mammy died, he still misses her desperately. He visits her grave every day to make sure it's looking lovely. It's my son's confirmation next week. I've asked Frank second ex-husband, to come to the house that day, and he said yes. Eric and I are planning to do another album. Maybe we should make this one a little happier, he said, but I'm still attracted to the dark songs. They will always probably, that will always probably be the way with me, no matter how much more of my life I'm in control of. My last album, The House of Ill Repute, didn't do so well in Ireland, which was disappointing. 
because you always want to be accepted in your on your own turf. It got good reviews all over the world and was voted the top 12 albums of the year in Germany. On the back of this, I have a new manager. I'm booked for a tour of England, Finland, Denmark, Sweden and Norway. In the meantime, I'll be playing the Sydney Opera House and touring other parts of Australia and New Zealand in the summer. My gigs in Christchurch and New Zealand are already sold out. Boxed away upstairs, I have photographs of myself being pushed around a trolley in an airport in Finland, drinking a bottle of vodka with a straw. The word Alco written in large blue marker on the bottle's label and a fragile sticker plastered to my head as a joke. Maybe I wasn't so fragile after all. Here I am, surrounded by my family and a long time free of drugs and alcohol that plagued my life for so long. I'm singing again some of the best material I've ever performed and gigging all over the world. But the most exciting things are getting up every morning and making breakfast with the kids or getting into my car to go over Aoife's house to look after my granddaughter. I'm not a little girl inside anymore. I have taken many steps in the past few years to become a responsible adult, responsible for myself. I'm never going back. Thank you. Mary Coggan, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. Thank you for sharing some of the stories of your life. Thank and you. thank you for your music. Thank you. And may you keep doing it for a long time to come. Thank and you. come back to Port Ferry again. Oh, hopefully, yeah. Caroline asked me already. <laughs> and I'm sure Mary will be very happy to sign copies of the book. Thank yeah, you for coming along. And the women out loud. I'm really looking forward to that tomorrow, tomorrow morning. morning. Yeah. Once again, so, Mary Coughlin, thank, thank you. Thank you.